This podcast is brought to you by jewishpodcasts.org. Start your very own podcast today at jewishpodcasts.org. Rebnosen Wachtvogel, the Mashgiach in Lakewood, decided he would like to follow up and find the Aseris Hashvatim and send some people there to talk to them. He spoke to some younger light, back and forth over a longer period of time, etc. And some of those younger lights spoke to me about it. They wanted me to join them, etc., etc. I had a number of um, practical questions, etc., etc. Um, I went to the Mashgir Terebnosen. I told them a number of uh, issues that I have that are very practical things that uh, it seems these may be issues, etc., etc. This was over a longer period of time. And then I heard nothing basically further. So I asked uh, one of the younger light what uh, ever happened with that thing. It was quite some time. So he says the Meshgir decided that he's not going to go through with it. I said, any special reason? He says, yeah, he says, because he he saw from you that you don't want to go along with this uh, project. So he decided not to continue. I said, what does that have to do with me? So he said... The Mashgir said that I'm a very practical person, and there was a number of things that I brought out that basically, and um, in, in, it seemed that there was a lot of questions if this thing could work, if they could get through over there. He felt it was someplace in China, etc., uh, etc., et and because of that, he felt that um, if I questioned it that much that I don't feel that something will come out from it on the end, or other questions that I had about it, he felt that uh, he doesn't want to proceed with it. That was the end of the Sarah Sashwatam. I really don't know all the details why he decided, why he needed the Sarah Sashwatam to find what it is. I don't know, and I just didn't follow up. I didn't feel too comfortable with this the whole project. <clears throat> One of my trips to Stroll. A few of my trips, I um, uh, called for an appointment to meet with Rav Shach. And Rav Shach was very, uh, very smart. It was just, you know, there was just certain things that the, the only one that could really handle this was Rav Shach. And I told him that basically it's time that there should be, uh, this was after Rav Shnei Espetira, time there should be a Rav in Lakewood that, takes a bird's eye view of the what the shtot needs, how it should run, etc., etc. He says he holds them 100% right, and he knows that the current um, and doesn't want, they want to be able to run it on their own, which he feels they can't do it, but uh, he feels that I'm definitely uh, justified that they should be a role, because if not, it could get eventually into a lot of issues and a lot of problems that can't be dealt with, etc., etc., who do I have that I could suggest? And if he feels that that is the right person, he will be able to force the issue. So I told him that a uh, shtot that never had a rov, the first rov is really only a korban. He'll never make it. The second one could make it, but the first one basically there is no way of uh, when a shtot was never used to having a rov. Met him to gain the yarn of whatever else it is. Everybody will have something else to say, and this and that will just make it impossible for him. Not going to work. He says you're right. He says so. Bring me both of them. Bring me the one that's the korban, and bring me the second one that you feel they could make it. 
And he started uh, laughing, uh, you know, a little bit uh, and talking a little bit louder. So some of his um, gabon started coming in. He told him to step out. And he told me uh, I basically shouldn't uh, discuss it with them. And um, and if I have the right people. So I said I don't feel it's right to present somebody that I feel will eventually be a Corbin. And uh, and the second one, so I said I, don't, I just can't do such a thing. He said, but when there's Robin... The Richtige mentioned that you feel that you have both of them, of what you feel are the right people, I could proceed with it. That he says, but the Violet, don't tell anything to them over here in Lakewood that you spoke to me about this parsha, which I didn't. <coughs> and another visit that I um, had with, uh, with Rav Shach, I told him, this was also Rav Shnei's material, that I think it's important that uh, the younger light, that uh, if, right after they get married, within three to four months, they should have to go to an outside cuddle, an out-of-town cuddle, learn there for 45 years, and then whatever happens, either to come back here, or to remain over there, or to get themselves a shtelo someplace, etc., etc. And I started explaining him some of the miles that I have. I said, first of all, because they wouldn't be going to all the... Chasinus, Simchas, and everything else from this side of the family, that side of the family, that smudge will be a lot better. Uh, also, all, everybody will be coming in time to say that, to davening and to everything else, because there's a smaller crowd over there, and basically you're obligated. It's not like um, you get lost in this bigger crowd. Uh, it'll definitely uh, help, I believe, in the Shalom bias issues and a lot of other things. It'll help also in the out-of-town <coughs> towns, wherever they have this, at the... The women could get jobs, and they could start schools over there. They, they could establish it. It'll become a more total community, etc. So he says, you don't have to explain to me the milers. He says, you only touch the tip of what the milers are. There's just so many milers that that would have. He says, that most of them that would go over there, which is a lot better than the ones that are sitting over here and just going through with the things. He says, it's, 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 it's ain't a dime, he says, what that can do. So I say, so could uh, Rosh Hashiva basically see how they can start feeling? He said, but in order to feel dark, you have to realize there's going to be certain Adams or sons from Rosh Hashivas or from Gvirim that they have their reasons why they want to have Dafkas or Zion and the Grossi Yeshiva. They don't want them to go out of town. And this one, there's Miyuchasim, there's all different kind of things. Narvas, you have to have somebody. That's a takov that has the shtemple, and he says, okay, you're going to go to this place, and you're going to go here, and you're going to go here. And it was kind of vechtel, it'll be yechidim, a few yechidim was on blibin, but basically, you have to be able to shtel avek and decide who. He says, and i got to tell you, he says, I don't think that you have the, anybody over there that could nemzich unter to do such a kind of thing. So even though it will be extremely, extremely beneficial, such a thing, for, for many, many more reasons than you've mentioned, but I don't think that there's the people there that was kennen as Dorachvirin. Okay, but I didn't want to stop at that point. I decided I'd like to know how Balabatim are going to take that. I did meet uh, with, when I was out in California, San Diego. I was there for about a week. So I met Nebitzchuk uh, Breidowitz, who was the head of the coil over there, and I had some longer schmoozing with him <coughs> to understand where he's coming from, this and that. Very, very smart, um, down-to-earth person, big Talmud Chochem, etc., etc. 
God over there, he uh, invited me to be by Shabbos by uh, some people over there, and then he told me that there's a, a older chos and a kala, and uh, we should come there for Shalashudas, this and that. So I decided, you know, I had some knowledge in um, a few other things, so I decided to make of, out of fruit a beautiful peacock. And at Shabbos, I had the address of where the Sheva Brachs is going to be for Shabbos. And I brought over with the peacock. And I saw the Chosan Kala and other people that are looking. They didn't ask who we are, why we are. And we put it down over there as uh, the main attraction was this beautiful peacock that we made out of a watermelon and other fruits. <coughs> and we left. And I saw them looking, you know, asking, you know, wondering to themselves who we are, what we are. I was there with my wife. And then when we came to Shalashudas, they were pointing, that's them, that's them, that's those people over there. It was that. Uh, so Bikitza, then they told uh, Yitzchak which this is the people that came and they brought this Friday. So he started laughing. He says, yeah, this was the guest that I told you that I'm inviting over here for the thing. Bikitza, I had a stickle chat with Yitzchak Breidowitz. And I, I found out that he's going to be speaking Motza Shabbos by the Big Agoda Convention. So I called him up. <clears throat> I was in New Jersey, and I called him up, and I said that I would like to speak to him before he speaks at the convention, because I want him to talk about a different topic of whatever he had prepared. He says, you know, I have my topic. I said, yeah, but I think this is a more important topic to, to prepare to talk about, and I'd like to meet with you. And I went down with my wife. I met with him, and I told him that it's interesting to see. I said, if Shach held very much from this thing of uh, the Lakewood Yungalite, all of them should go out to out of town, for four to five years, and establish etc., etc. The Shach is how Balabatim and others, Yeshiva Shabalabatim, everything else, had they would take to it. I want him to address this issue at the Aguda convention, and I see the feedback he gets from Balabatam, from Rashivas, from all those people, because that's the kind of people that basically we're really addressing. And he says, you know, I think it's a very good idea, and I'm going to take a change my um, my topic what I'm going to talk about, and we'll talk about this. And I left. He called me back a few days later, and he says he spoke to them, and he got a lot of feedback, and <clears throat> there was a lot of positive feedback on this thing. <coughs> Shalom was had a move right there. So I spoke to Debel uh, Yeshevei <coughs> and Shmuel Kamenetsky about it. And um, Shmuel Kamenetsky came to Lakewood for a Shabbos. He was here for whatever reason it is. And he sp- decided to speak to one of the Shivas to get it across. And they told me basically he couldn't even get the first base with anything. So he doesn't think that it's going to work and this and that. And you don't have a shach that's pushing it. So basically he doesn't think that this thing is really um, going to happen. He said it's a show that it's not going to happen. But what can you do? They want to have everybody to stay here. They're not interested in the other things. They want the yeshiva just plan to grow by leaps and bounds, etc., etc. When I was once by the, sh- I went to see a number of the shchitas in Eretzstol, behemoth shchitas, poultry shchitas, etc., etc. I do have kabbalah shchita, nicker, etc., etc., plus a lot of other things. So I went to see also Rabbi Ruben shchita of chickens. I saw behemoth also by him, but by the chicken shchita, I noticed basically that there was a certain issue that I felt as a concern of uh, by the shachtim. And I brought it to his attention. He told me no. He says uh, he knows what I'm talking about, but he holds that I'm uh, I'm not correct with it. 
And uh, I said, okay, I said, I have arrived from Prima Gautam that way. So what he did was, I have to give him a lot of credit, he went and stopped the Shechita, called in all the Shechitim, and he says, in the meantime, I want you to make a change with uh, your, etc., etc., by the Shechita, follow this and this thing, until I tell you otherwise. And uh, what he did was the following week, I was back in, in America already, he went to, went to Revel Yashiv. And he told Revel Yashiv what the issue is, and he says there was a lot of other, other Rabbanim over the years that came there, nobody brought it up. And Rav Yashiv listened to him, and Rav Yashiv opened up the Gemara and uh, continued learning. After 15 minutes, he first he thought Rav Yashiv wanted to think about it, the shtickle, because it, may, it seemed to be a serious uh, issue. <coughs> so he, after 15 minutes, he mentioned again to Rav Yashiv the thing. So Rav Yashiv asked him, are you asking about the Ovar or the Osid? He says both. So Rav Yashiv uh, continued with his beautiful to- tune to learn, and he continued learning. So Rabbi Reuben chapped what's going on, and he told him, no, I only want to know the Osid, not the Ovar. So he says, if the Osid do as the younger man told you, because that's gerecht. <coughs> In my opinion, and Rabbi Rubin agreed with me, why Rabbi Yashua didn't want to deal with it was, it, it, is, it was really uh, a serious uh, question, even though others didn't pick up on it, but it was a serious issue. And Rabbi Yashua did not want to deal with it on the Ovar because there was real serious shyness, etc., etc. So Rabbi Rubin is a qualified law. you go and handle whatever there was on the Ovar, you know now that that's the way you should do it. So you deal with the situation of what it is. I don't have to take the time to deal with the situation on the Ovar, but on the Ovar, Kenneth is talking that that is the right way to do it, and you should do it the way you were told to do it. <coughs> I was doing. Uh, I was used to be a givash on a wedding in a terrace of Rome in Williamsburg. <coughs> I come there, and basically one of the items they had over there was tilapia, frozen uh, fillet tilapia and fish. Take a look at it. Something bothered me. I didn't know what it was, but I decided to go to my car and take out the calendar. And I take a look to see what the date was that the tilapia was produced in in the, in China, and it seemed that it was made on Yontif of Pesach, which I doubt if there was any Majgich that was there at that time. It was under Hamish Ashgach and the OU, so I questioned it very much. So I told them they should call up the Tzachdas to ask them what the story is with this thing, because according to the calendar, it was done on Pesach. <coughs> So Sachtas called them back and said, uh, no, really what it is is that the government doesn't want people to empty out the the lakes and everything from uh, all the fish. They have certain seasons when you could fish and when you can't fish, so there could always be a big supply of fish. So they, this was one of the dates, they, they, that period of time they didn't want anything done. <clears throat> so Sachtas worked out with the company, they should fudge the date and write a different date. Not the, not the real date. So the mail was not done on pace, was on a different date. So I went and called up the OU and I asked him, do you go along with this of allowing fudging of dates? They said, absolutely not. I said, well, this is what they answered back. And uh, so the OU notified them <coughs> that if they'll ever catch 
<coughs> again, fudging of dates, and having wrong dates, they'll basically <coughs> not want to go with them anymore on any hashgachas, etc., etc., because they feel it's not right to, to anybody to do such a thing. Happened to be at that same affair, there was a, they had salad, and a waiter comes in, and he says... Um, I have a request from uh, the lady side. They, she wants to have an undressed salad. So one of the workers in the kitchen was going. I say, now let me handle this. So I go over to the waiter, and I tell him, please go tell the lady over there that this is a very religious affair, and nothing goes out of the kitchen undressed. He had a good laugh. And he went back and told the lady, and he says everybody at the table was left. And he came back, and then we gave him his undressed salad. <coughs> there was a yeshiva, a large, uh, you know, medium-sized yeshiva of, uh, you know, with a kodal, etc., etc. They made that dinner, <coughs> their annual dinner, they made in the base madrash. They put up a mechitza in front of the Aron Kodesh, and they moved out all the tables and the chairs from the thing, set up tables and made that that's where the dinner was yeah with with no mechitza my mother it bothered very much and she wanted after they should be with a mechitza at least yeah they had them the, the, the women were in the one section the men in the other section but there was no mechitza so <coughs> my mother had <coughs> me measured the width of the base madrash etc etc she made a mechitza out of cloth, very, very nice cloth, and everything else like it, she gave me uh, two hooks that I put into the to the wall that I screwed in before the dinner, I had it screwed in over there, so then she gave me with the wire and the string and the mechitza, and when the people come in to sit down, I should put up the mechitza. I was a young, you know, as my mother tells me to do, uh, that's what I do, that's that's the way uh, I grew up, basically, so I was there, it must have, it was in the, in the, um, I think it was after they turned the clocks already, so it got dark pretty early. And the people started sitting down there by the table. So I walked in from Desus Nashim with the Mechitza. I had somebody else help me. And I hooked it up on the things over there, and there was now a Mechitza. The people were able to go through. It was a curtain, but a not very, very nice curtain. So the executive director came in. People were making a little bit of a tumult, and he looked at it, and he says, no. I don't want this thing over here. He physically himself went and took it off and folded it up and threw the whole thing into that disnoshim. He doesn't want it. But I had, and he tells me, he says, who said there's going to be a mechitza over here? I said, my mother said. He says, it's vast. I say, if my mother said that mechitza, then there's going to be a mechitza. So he says, well, I'm saying there's not going to be a mechitza and there's not going to be a mechitza. So I went down to the main... Um, circuit breaker and I pulled the main circuit breaker and I shut off all the electric in the building and it was chayshach. there was some little lights the, the exit lights went on etc etc and there was a tumult people shrine this director says put on the lights I'll let you put on the mechitza I said now first we put up the mechitza I have a flashlight with me first we put back up the mechitza and then I'll open the electric and that's what I did. We put up the mechitza and opened the electric. And I told him, I'm going to wait around. If this mechitza goes off again, I'm going to close the electric. And you call the electric company and the police, whoever you want. And basically, there is not going to be no electric or anything. And I'm telling you, if my mother says there's going to be a mechitza, there's going to be a mechitza. That's the way it was. So what do you think they did the next year? They didn't make the dinner over there. They made it someplace else. No more over there. No mechitza. But that year, there was a mechitza. There was a, a veal street in South Jersey, 
by Imperial Brothers. And there was OU Shchita, Stark Heshchita, I'm not sure if there was any other ones there also or not. I went down there, I used to go there in the, in the old plant. They put up about two, three weeks before I came down, they opened up a new plant, very modernized plant, etc., etc. Their main shoichet, um, and the one that ran it for the Ashgachis was somebody, Herschel Ashkenazi, Tzvi Ashkenazi. Very, very um, big mumche in, in shechita, in, in animal, in nicker, and everything. Very, very big mumche. And I come there, and I take a look at the new system, <coughs> and I tell him, I say, Herschel, stop the shechita. He says, why? I say, because I hold that every single behem over here is an avela. He says, no, I'm telling you, there is no drasa, even though the behem is laying on its stomach and it's moving very, very slow. There is no drasa. Watch how I'm making the shechita, and you'll see there's no drasa. Mm-hmm. I say, no, Herschel, the problem is not the drasa. The problem is Messiah. This thing is moving extremely slow. I don't care how slow it's going, but it's moving towards the knife, not away from the knife. So uh, basically, it, it this is basically a Messiah, and it's an Avela. He thinks about it for half a minute, and he tells the manager to tell everybody to go to lunch early. He calls in the owners into a room. They were all Shemesh uh, Shabbos and the Beer Brothers, and he tells them that even though I know I costed you a quarter of a million dollars in designing the system, but this uh, rabbi happens to be right. There has to be a. Uh, it has to stop when it reaches the shoichet, and the shoichet is the only one that can release it, that it can go after he makes the shechita. And otherwise, if you don't agree, then I am removing the OU and the star K from your plan today, and you're only left with a uh, non-kosher kill. That's it. So they said you're not giving us any, any, uh, any chances of basically... Come and go with some other kind of solution, etc., etc. He says, that's correct. I'm not giving you no other choices. It's take it or leave it, and I want to have an answer within five minutes. So, they basically told him, we have no choice. We're going to go along with it. He says, okay, so we're going to have that it keeps on stopping. And before by the, by before we start tomorrow, the shechita, there will be a button installed over there that the shechit controls the the stopping and starting of the shechita going. And basically, I had to give him a tremendous amount of credit. Uh, you costed the company a quarter of a million dollars in designing the system, and you overlooked this, uh, this a very important factor. And it changes the whole system. Things get slowed down a little bit, etc., etc. <coughs> and basically, he had the guts to stand up for it. You know, I give him a lot of credit. A few weeks later, uh, I made a chasana in uh, Borough Park, my daughter. And I gave him a bracha on the chuppah, and people says, what, what, your shaykh is with the head, I said, yeah. I said, I'd like to meet another person that could stand his ground that tight when he's the one that caused the company uh, to invest this amount of money, and he realized that he made a mistake, and he could stand his ground and say, I made a mistake. I said, yes, that person deserves a bracha on the chuppah, and I give him a tremendous amount of credit. Then he asked me, because I was very good, boy, boy, I checked the sakinim over there, so he wanted me to come up to Dierschrita that he was doing in upstate New York, and I should be his boy, the Sakinim over there, and he wanted to show me nicker on deer, which basically the only nicker you really do on deer is Gidhanosha. 
the machloikas with the lambam and the rived, if it's from the inside, it's from the outside, etc., etc. And I went up there, and it was very, very interesting. And he showed me the knicker. He's beautiful manaka. He, he he cuts like a surgeon. He doesn't ruin any of the meat or anything. And he goes exactly. He knows exactly where the gedanasha goes. And he was able to take out the gedanasha basically in in one piece. The, uh, the the inside one and the outside one. And showed me this one is the rivets and this was the ram. Very very interesting to watch a thing. Then the uh, the balabas gave me two uh, pieces of deer. To, to try it, I checked with two famous chefs of how you do um, deer, and each one gave me a different recipe of how to broil or how to whatever else it is. Tasted it, I uh, my family just didn't go for it, so I never had any venison or anything else like it. We just don't go for it. <coughs> These uh, trucks that carry whatever it is, six to ten thousand gallons of uh, food liquid. So I was cashing one of those trucks at a place. So as I was getting the truck lined up to be able to kasha, the driver comes over to me and he says, Rabbi, could you, uh, I have to go to uh, FedEx, so could you uh, please do this a little bit faster? I say, no, it's going to take time. It'll take me about an hour and a half at least. So you could go to FedEx. What does that have to do with you? He says, why? You can't kosherize the truck without me being here. I say, why is that? The truck is parked in the right place. I don't need you over here. He says, then you don't know how to kosherize a truck. I said, really? Could you tell me how they kosherize a truck? He says, I'm doing it. I could go cross-country. What they do is the rabbi puts his hand on top of the wheel well of the truck, and his other hand he puts on my shoulder. I don't know what he says over there, what he says to himself, and he goes inside and he gets his check. I say, no, that's not the way it's done. I say, you know what? You go to Federal Express, get your thing done, I'll do a different truck in the meantime, and when you come back, I'll show you how to do the truck, he says. And he's taking notes of every single thing, and <coughs> explained them, why you have to put in the water, why you have to wash it, and why there's the, the, <coughs> the pre-wash, and what happened with the pre-wash water, and when you ch- and checking the temperatures of the water that's coming out, to know what it is, if it, if it got up the temperature or it didn't, and then you put in a steam line in the thing, to bring up the thing with the temperature, etc., etc., went through the whole thing, and he took notes, I said. Why are you taking notes of this whole thing? He says, because I meet a number of rabbis on the way, and they uh, this is the way they've been doing it and making our bucks. But now I realize, and you explain to me what the problems are and the issues. Now I'm going to challenge these rabbis because now I know what is the correct way of kosherizing a truck. The following question was asked, aside from Reb Moshe <coughs> Feinstein and aside from Reb Yaakov, on two different occasions. And the question was. <clears throat> if there happens to be two chiyuvim in Tadavim uh, for the Ahmed, equal chiyuvim, it's a or shloishim, or there's a yard site, um, what's the halach? Should they go make a second minion? Does the <coughs> the one that usually happens for Ahmed, but there's a yard site, the, the, should he go make a second minion or not? Both said making a second minion is not brought down in halacha any place. In halacha it says, <coughs> but if two people have the same chiyuv, and basically should make a girl. <coughs> but there's a problem if you go make other minion. First of all, Barovam Hadras Melchi taking that away. The second thing is you're taking away from the one that uh, basically has a mokin kavur to Davon, which is supposed to have a mokin kavur by going and Davon with another minion over there. Besides the fact that a lot of times there's no other Kodesh, there's no other Sinish, there's Zelba, based Smedish, the Nazat, the same based Haknesis that there is over there. And second of all, which they both said is that when there's <coughs> another Chiv, a Yorzat comes along, the other one is not even a 
Chiv. So what's case to schlep in the oil room that they should go over there? So I told them, I said, if somebody comes and they ask me, <coughs> they want to make another minion, they're unaware of this. They said, no, you shouldn't go because basically you're partaking this thing of taking away Biravam, you're partaking this thing that the, you don't have in, in the Mokon Kavu, etc. And every person should really always have a Mokon Kavu where they have in, and not the Moldor, Moldor, and then you go in this place and that place. It should be a Mokon Kavu to have and they barely told me that I really should not join up with those other minions. Because the other one really doesn't have a chiv. Only this this one that has the chiv, and the other one is not even a bar chiv. Uh, one uh, day I get a call from one of the head rabbis of the RCA, Rabbinical Council of America, uh, that there's somebody coming in from Etzral, an engineer, which designed a... Um, alarm for a Kodesh that could be open and closed on Shabbos. They don't know anything about how these things work, and he'd appreciate if I could come down and talk with the person before Shabbos to know if what he has over there, if it makes sense or it doesn't make sense, and what the story is. And if it's Eiskalten, because I have a, a somewhat of an understanding of, of electric and electronics. So I went down, I met this Rabbi Rosen from Tzomet, He's the one that designed it. <coughs> and I asked him to explain how it works, and he explained to me how it works, and he says there's a, a grammar, basically, etc., etc. And I told him that there really is no grammar, it just a hap- It just has a, a time delay, but basically it is doing a malach immediately, and he says, no, it isn't. So I said, you agree if it works the way I'm telling you it works, you agree with me that it's also. If it works the way you say it works, it's def- it, it'll be mutter. But I'm telling you, electronically, it can't work the way you're telling me. Could you please show me the schematic diagram, and we could be- analyze it exactly what it is. So he says, <coughs> but I have a letter from Rabbi Feinstein and from Rabbi Vadi Yosef, to permit it that everything is Eiskalten. <coughs> I say, one, you get one from Reb Shlom Islam and Orbach, who has a good understanding of electric, and the reason I guess that you didn't get it from him, because you know that he wouldn't approve it. And could I see the letter <coughs> from Reb Moshe, please? And he shows me the letter. I said, yeah, Reb Moshe says that the thing is also. He says, no, he says, he says, no, I say, in the letter it says, Kefisho Hisberli. The way he explained to me, it comes out that it's mo- that it's motor to use. I said, yeah, but the Moshe doesn't understand this part of electric. He says, the way you explained it, but the way you explained it to me, and the way you explained it to Rabbi Shlomo Zalman, uh, and to anybody else that understands electric and electronics, basically, this thing is definitely Osir. And um, basically, I told uh, the Rabbanim that they, uh, the thing is, be- is, uh, is definitely also it's even the it's Emerson Lochus. And the summit organization designed a lot of other things for Shabbos, and they called with the with the grammar switch, etc., etc. They're using it a lot. What's the name? The uh, Baltimore Hashgacha over there has a lot of things. They came out all the Shabbos appliances, the refrigerators, the stoves. And uh, a lot of other things, uh, things that somebody should be able to go into, like a wheelchair and other carts to drive on Shabbos, etc., etc. Everything is based on this so-called um, 
a fake grammar switch, which basically is not Oiskalten, but that's what the, these things are all based on. So it's, uh, it is a problem, and Absalom Miller and Moish Sternbuch and others have all signed letters against that thing. And I think it was Absalom Goldberg also signed letters against this. Um, <coughs> type of thing that they have over there that they're using these refrigerators and these grammar switches and everything else. <coughs> I got a call one day from Reb Ariel Albag, uh, the one that gives the Ashgacha and Hebrew National meats, you know, the salami, the provisions and everything else like it. <coughs> and he says they called him that he should go down to the Iowa Rabashkin plant, Aaron's uh, Agri. Uh, because they have um, trimmings that they want to sell to Hebrew National. <coughs> they don't, uh, Hebrew National does not sell glot. Everything by them is kosher, but not glot. And the uh, Rabashkin plant in Iowa, Agri, um, and Aaron said that they have a, a, a lot of trimmings they could give them, not the Beis of and not the glot, but the regular kosher, and they have a uh, nice amount so they could come down. So he asked me if I could tell him anything what's going on in the plant, because I seem to be more familiar what's going on there. So I told him that basically you've been in enough plants of shechitas in your life. You definitely know plants well enough, and there's nothing that I have to tell you. But one thing which I do want to tell you, but you can only use it once, and you can't tell your children or anybody else. The key thing that you have to know is, if anybody's lying to you, who's lying to you? Once you know that, you'll know exactly what you have, to, what's going on, and everything else like it. He says, "Fine." He's not going to tell anybody, and he's going to use it just once. And he goes down there. First, the um, Hebrew National <coughs> sent down one of their big mumchem implant operations. They sent him down there for a couple of days, a guy. And then Rabbi Rava came down there to be there for a day, went through the thing, the guy showed him that he had, a, he had an issue with these things, those things. <coughs> but gets on the end, uh, Rabbi Rava calls me up, and he told me the following, uh, that uh, they can't take anything from there because it doesn't meet their standards of kashras. And my method worked very, mu- very well, but he's embarrassed to tell me who the lawyers are. He's embarrassed, <coughs> which I can understand what it is. <coughs> I can understand which uh, uh, the, the who the people are that basically lying to him. <coughs> but it's interesting that the um, Rabashkin plant cannot meet the kosher standards of Hebrew National. <coughs> there was another time I got a call from Rabbi Ralbag that there was two shachtim uh, that he sent away. Uh, I think they were brothers. And because they were found to go to places where Frumi Eden really shouldn't go, uh, we'll call it um, uh, um, red light districts, and we merely have to send them away. I said, okay, so what, is, what are you calling me about? Uh, that's the fact. I say, you know, I'm not eating Hebrew National. He says, no, because he found out now <coughs> that they are working now as a Shach by so-called Hasidic Shechita. I said, really, by who? And he tells him, by who? <coughs> so I go and I call up that Rav Machshir. 
And I tell him, do you have, by you working uh, these and these people? And he says, yes, they do. They happen to be very, very good workers. <coughs> I say, do you know that they were sent away from <coughs> Hebrew National Barabar el He says, no, I didn't know. I say, you don't ask where they worked and what the story was? <coughs> he says, no, I don't ask because it's none of my business. If they're very good workers, everything else like it. I said, but I'm telling you, they were sent away because they went to places where Frumayidin don't belong to go to those type of places. <coughs> he says, do you believe everything that people tell you? I say, no. He says, so don't believe these Baba Mises. So I say, just hold on a minute. <coughs> I conferenced in Rabbi Elbag onto the telephone, and I told him, this is what the Shrov says, they're working over there. So Rabbi Robach told him straight out. He says, I checked it out. My people checked it out and everything else like it. It's not baloney stories. This is a straight, it ain't a memos of what's going on. So this Rabbi Machsha says, I'll check it out to see what it is. And then he calls me back to Rabbi Machsha a couple of days later. He says, his uh, Shachtim and his crew checked it out. They don't find that they go to these kind of places. They don't do nothing like it. Nishnagea. And he's keeping them, and they're still there. And that's that's called Hasidic Sheshchita, for better or for worse. Sometimes, you know, I'm not saying all of them are like that, but they, they keep these kind of people. Usually a different Sheshchita would hear of this kind of thing. They would go send them right off, or whatever else it is. If they caught them in one place, okay. Unless, basically, for some reason or other, that these didn't catch them over there, etc. They knew to watch themselves, or whatever else it is. <clears throat> a number of years ago, the head of the American Institute of Baking, which basically solves the problems for all commercial industrial bake, uh, bakeries in the United States and out of the country, so the head of it was, uh, one of them basically was Professor Thomas Lehman. And he taught me a lot of, um, of uh, how cracker ovens work, which is basically the ovens that are commonly used for machine matzahs, regardless of it's for Pesach, for all year, etc., etc. And from uh, his explanations, and I showed him matzahs, etc., etc., I've gone through it. It seemed to be that there's most of those ovens, old ovens, basically work on a certain principle that the first section is called spring. That basically makes that the yeast in the dough, even the natural yeast, it doesn't die. Natural yeast will die usually at about 165 degrees. So they make sure that the internal temperature of the dough does not reach 165 degrees. And it goes through that section, so the matzah basically rises, and that's what gives it the rise, and that's called spring. The second section is called color, which is a high temperature that it goes through, which gives top and bottom color, but does not really bake the inside. And then it goes through a medium temperature, much lower temperature, at a long, long period of time, which basically that uh, doesn't bake the inside, but really dries it. That's what it does, and that takes a longer period of time. So actually, as far as the matzah is concerned, you know, the machine matzah, it seems to be a very serious problem because once it reached a temperature, a higher temperature, and spring, that is what we're always concerned about, that piatanur shouldn't cause the thing to become chasvashol And because it goes through that section like that and rises like that, it seems that it may, it may have gotten into a problem right when it went into the oven. And then the last section where it doesn't get really baked, but it gets dried, uh, is, 
is another issue over there that the thing is not constantly uh, the same temperature for it to bake. There's only one bakery that I found. I've covered a lot of the bakeries, uh, just about all of them. One bakery in Beit Shemesh called uh, Matz Beit Shemesh uh, Chabura, that that one has an oven, which is a completely short oven, which has one temperature straight across the thing, so you don't have the problem. It's always a baking temperature straight across the thing, and there's no really drying of it, and there's no spring to it, etc., etc. So the question was, is the, so those ovens basically work with... Um, it doesn't go onto a metal, solid metal belt. It goes onto a mesh belt. That mesh belt basically does is do, it makes it that it bakes in the air, in the hot temperature of the air. It doesn't bake because of contact temperature on the metal, and that's why the matzahs in the hand matzahs go is basically gets baked by contact temperature because it makes contact right away with a hot brick and that bakes much much faster than bakes straight through but when it's a, uh, a mesh which is called katen and that's what uh, the Bjornis and Steif addressed in a chuva that he wrote some 60-65 years ago that is very upset on the new katen oven that they have because he holds these serious problems with it and this is the kind of problems that the katen oven has because the oven that Bjornis and Steif used when he made the machine matzah the machine basically only rolled out the dough and made it into flat sheets but putting it into the oven basically was done by hand and it went into a regular flat stone oven not these type of ovens so these ovens basically of the the crack oven that they have when i've asked a number of these bakeries if they could show me the book so i wanted to show the bottom in the book of how the oven works then none of everybody refused to show me the the manufacturer's book of how the oven works and they wouldn't show it to the bottom and the bottom really are not that aware of exactly how these ovens work but it really is a concern and i've gone through with uh, uh, regarding hand matzahs, etc., etc., which bakeries and the Chazonish says you should use very little water, which is very simple. Why they should use very little water because water absorbs heat from the oven a lot faster than the flour. And what happens is that the matzah, because it's an oven of 11 to 1200 degrees, the oven, the matzah will bake on the outside before the inside is really baked. And what's happening is when they take out the matzah from the oven, even though you have, it looks like nickel and top and bottom, but because of the very high temperature and the high ratio of water, what happens is the inside is not really baked. And what happens is after you take it out, and it's really 350 degrees at that point, or 400 degrees, as it sits, basically it gets dry the inside. If you really break the matzah, you'd see a little glossy layer in between that comes from basically not being baked but being dried so it's an ASIC so I um, basically set up I, I've been by a number of bakeries and I found the best one to work with was the Puppet Salem Bakery and they start off by me with at 42% water so it's a pretty dry dough so we don't have this thing so by the time basically it gets baked uh, it really gets baked and it doesn't get anything dried and uh, because of a low ratio of water and I've set up um, all guidelines and a number of yeshiva lights when they go to do their their chabura matzahs they take along the list that I've made and they give it to the bakery because it's basically pretty much encompassing of all areas that you want to cover that there should not be any problems <coughs> Thank <laughs> you.
When I was a Bacha learning in the Mir Yeshiva in Brooklyn, I used to go Friday afternoons and Sunday afternoon. I went to um, Mr. Rosenberg, Mr. Yosef Rosenberg, uh, that had the Schatner's Laboratory on Lee Avenue in Williamsburg, and I learned Schatner's testing, and I worked by him in the laboratory for quite some time, doing testing together with, together with him, etc., etc., and became uh, very knowledgeable in the um, uh, complete uh, field of testing, button red testing, and everything else, etc., etc. And then I, st- years later, I started checking of what they're doing in in other areas if the boitkem are qualified. And I found that in Mansi, the one that was doing it for years and years, basically, was completely unqualified. He, he, a lot of his begotten that he has, that he puts on labels on them, that they don't have any shotness, really was found that it does have shotness, etc., etc. Others felt that he really is a bigger mumcha than Mr. Rosenberg by saying that Mr. Rosenberg said on a certain thread, a button thread, that it's uh, n- not linen, and this... Uh, fellow uh, Mansi says that it is linen, so um, they felt that basically that he's a bigger mumchum than that. I went to check what that thread is. It's called in the industry, which is a very strong thread, mercerized cotton. Now, why did that person in Mansi feel that it's shatnas, because uh, that it's that it's linen? Because linen under a microscope looks like a bamboo stick. You know, every um, uh, it has these these round uh, circles on it uh, protruding uh, every uh, small distance, whatever else it is, and in a in a um, fiber of a thread. If you look under a microscope with a hundred power, you see it looks like a um, bamboo, which is the telltale sign of uh, linen. So that's why he felt it's linen, and uh, Mr. Rosenberg said, no, it's mercerized cotton, it has nothing to do with linen. So I went and called up <coughs> the one that holds the patent on mercerized cotton, and he asked him, how could you tell the difference if it's cotton or linen when under the microscope they basically look the same, they look like a bamboo. So he told me because cotton is round and linen is flat. He said, does that answer my question? I say, no, it doesn't. I, he said, evidently you don't understand fibers. So I said, could you please explain it to me? So he tells me, a flat thing, as you move it along under the microscope, it keeps on twisting. And you could see there's another twist and another twist. A round thing, as many times you keep turning it, it always looks exactly the same. It doesn't ha- it's not like a flat thing that now that flat part that was up now is down, now is on the side, etc., etc. So he says if you take the moisturized cotton and you move it along, you'll see it, it looks completely different than linen. But, you know, you have to be a mumcha in it. And that one evidently is not a mumcha. So, <clears throat> what he's been doing for years, can, uh, he didn't know how to check any shatnas. And that's why uh, I and others were able to get the area in in, uh, in, in Passaic and other areas in in Queens that I bought him basically caught him down and showed him a number of garden that he checked and he said that it was uh, he, he had his labels in there and we checked it and found that it had linen in there and we showed it to him and uh, they banned him from coming anymore over there they banned him in a few other places coming but I think in Muncie there's still um, 
that he's still doing testing, and then he has his son and his son-in-law doing testing in Lakewood, and basically uh, the oilum doesn't hop, that basically these are unqualified people, and uh, you have to recheck the things. There was an interesting story many years ago. <coughs> there was a tailor in Muncie, not, not a from a tailor, I'm not even sure if he was Jewish, and he claimed that he knew how to tell if something is linen or not, and my brother that just became by mitzvah then gave him in his suit to check and to make the cuffs on the pants, and he says it doesn't have any linen, but he went to ask Ramosha if you could rely on this friar person or this guy regarding if it has um, linen in it or not. He says, no, they have no nemonis, and you can't wear the the thing. You have to give it in to check. And so it was already <coughs> Friday. Couldn't go get it to Williamsburg to be able to check. So I figured <coughs> wear it for Shabbos. And after Shabbos, he'll send it into with somebody to Williamsburg to be able to check, or somebody in Mansi <coughs> that checks, and they'll send in a sample to the thing. They'll check it that way. But Friday, there was no time. He wore Shabbos, and there was a can in the street on his uh, mitzvah day, and basically he kicked the can, and the can exploded, and it sprayed up his suit, and basically uh, the cleaner said it got damaged beyond you can't clean it or anything else like it, the only thing you can do with the suit is throw it out. <coughs> a lot of trips that are do, do, done um, with this uh, organization called Kosher Rica, it is uh, these uh, tours that they go on these ships all over whatever else it is. They'll take you know you'll have usually five six thousand people on a on uh, one of these uh, big massive ships, and they have a few hundred people that are from people, and they tell them we're giving you a kosher meal, etc. etc. They they don't know anything better. There's a couple of mashgichim that raise on the boat, and they think that they get in kosher, and they have with professional chazanim on there and everything else like. And a lot of from people are going there, but they don't realize that it's basically they're being served really tafus because the there was on that boat was uh, one of the biggest, uh, he happened to be a friar person, but he's one of the biggest mumchem in setting up large uh, kosher affairs for a lot of um, organizations, etc., etc. Tremendous, tremendous mumcha. He was there, he was asked by uh, by the ones that make this kosher rika thing, if he could place and take a trip with them over there and see if there's things that he could improve on. And he spoke to the mashgich, and he was in the kitchen, and you have basically <clears throat> uh, refrigerators, ovens on so many different floors, on ten different floors. <clears throat> it's not shy for Mashgich to keep track. Then he asked the Mashgich, where this meat come from? He says, from this and this refrigerator. What's your Samonim? And the, 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 the guy says he knows he took it out from here, he took it from this box and that box, with no Samonim there. Takes out the bread from the oven. Yeah, they baked it in the in the morning in the oven, but the oven wasn't kosher or anything else like it. And they baked real trefus and milk and everything else in these ovens over there. And the kids said, he started picking up there's loads of problems. The Mashgichim can't have a handle of what's going on. You need a lot more mashgichim. You need uh, over a dozen mashgichim there because everything is on different floors and they can't keep track. They use the the, the griddle basically because you can't use fire on a boat because everything is electric on these ships. <coughs> so they'll use the same griddle for milchiks in the morning to make uh, eggs or blintzes or other dairy things in the morning. Then they go, they take, uh, they uh, turn on the thing, they just 
put it in on uh, take some hot water, spill onto the thing hot water, and the cartridge really those things need a libin and a libin gomer. Hot water with that basically your griddle is still is still milchix and then from the night before they're doing it constantly in the morning and then they do it twice a day is really flashic but really the griddle never was kasha correctly in the first place because they couldn't bring a torch onto the thing and it was basically done with with some hot water over there which is hagala you can't do that on a grid on a griddle and basically so you're talking about straight trefus and you're talking about the stuff coming out of the oven is is, is also treif. Just the meats and the other things that are coming, there is no way of keeping track what it is. And there was one mashgiach once that started realizing that things are not too too glut, and he started asking questions and everything else like it. So then when they made a stop someplace, and everybody got off basically to go to tour the place over there for a couple of hours, they told the mashgiach a certain amount of time that he could be on land. And it was really uh, less time, and the boat left, and he called up, and he said, what's this? They said, nope, go take a, um, a, a flight back to New York, uh, wherever it was, or to Florida, etc., etc. But uh, they didn't need him over there because he was a troublemaker. He started realizing the problems. But basically, there isn't a single one of those trips on this Costa Rica things or these other kind of tours that... Anybody besides, I'm not talking about the Tznias and the preachers and everything else that they have over there that they that they, they lose all the Yiddishkeit and everything else, but they're eating straight, straight, trefa, straight down the line. <coughs> I spoke a few times at the Shevabrochus. Uh, I said over a word which basically I cleared with Rip Shlemizalman Orbach if I uh, if it's Oiskalten. What I tell the Chosen and Kala is that I could guarantee them. Guaranteed Olam Haba and guaranteed Olam Haza. And they're looking at me this far. I said, Yes, guaranteed. But why do I, how do I guarantee them Olam Haba? It says, The Prime Ben Tradian asked, Mo'anil Chaylam Haba. Am I going to have Olam Haba? So they asked him, Klum Maisa Boli Yazcha. Was there Maisa that happened? So he says, Yes. Neschalfli Mois Maisa or Tzedakah money. He got exchanged and he got mixed up in which pocket he put it. So he went and gave everything to Tzedakah. So Rashi over there says, Off in plots, he says, Vatran Ayisi Bimoini. I was a Vatran with my moments and I gave it all away. And the Gemara goes right there. So the, the Pelot is. How, if he asked Mani L'chayil just because he gave away the money to Daka, he's guaranteed Olam Haba? So what I wanted to tell you is as follows. This was the Maishwit of Chinin Ben Tadim from the Asura Rugi Malchus. If, if his middle was Vatranas, because you see he did it with that, that was his middle, he did with everything. He was a Vatran, that's what he was, he was a Vatran. And it says, If a person comes of Yanavel to Bezan Shalmala, takes a look and they said the scale went down and you did more various than mitzvahs, this and that, and basically you're not soich now for Olam Haba at this point. He has a right to mon the Bezan Shalmala. He that I was a veteran over here my whole life. I was a veteran. I have a right to mon veteranus from you also. And Mamela, they have to give him Olam Haba. So I said, if the couple, basically, each one will be a vatran. A vatran is not when you're wrong. That's not vatranus. Vatranus is when you're right and you still give in. And you basically um, 
given to the other one. So if the husband will always be a vatran, the wife will be a vatran, not you tell the other one to be the vatran, but you're the vatran, the male you'll have chayel uh, and Son chayel I told them if you ask anybody of uh, that's married, if they have vatranus in the house, they'll always have chayel also. So the Shlomo Zalman told me that from his experience, based by him in the house, it was complete, complete vatranus. It was just, he was quicker than his wife, so usually he was mavater before his wife was mavater. He says, but unless it had to do with yadus, then there's no vatranus. But in everything else, he says it was him and his wife, each one was always mavater to the other one, no matter what you have. He says, in the oilam machtatos, the oilam says, you don't lose from vatranus. In Ishtamas. You gain from Vatranas. There is no such a thing that you don't lose from Vatranas. And the same thing was what Rebbe Nosen Vachtfeigl told me also, that from the experience he had with people that came over to him and he told them they should be Mavata, they should be Mavata here and there, nobody ever had this thing that they didn't lose, but they always gained. So Mela, you could have Olam Haza and Olam Haba if... Basically, you have, and the Shlomo Zalman told me, Ich kann das because he holds it at Emesa Emesa Bart.